The Bible passage for this morning is from Luke chapter 23, which you can find on page 1607 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you'd like to follow along. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Thanks, Sharon. Hey, everybody. I love the second service. It's so intimate in here with you guys. It's like twice as many people at first service. All right. You guys ready? Okay, I've got a really good 90-minute sermon we're going to do in 40 minutes, okay? Um... I'm going to preach on, I'm going to focus on the verses we just heard, but, I'm, but this sermon is, is covering Luke 22:25 to Luke 23:25, which is about five pages in your pew Bible, only two in my small print wide margin Bible. Um, I want to encourage you over Holy Week this week to read through the different episodes in those two chapters and to do it with the mentality that I want to give you in this sermon. Okay, so my hope is I'm going to preach this sermon. You'll find it deeply helpful and moving. Right? And then you'll use what I tell you in this sermon to read through these different episodes as you go through the week this week. Okay, that's my hope. Right? Now, Christians, especially of the evangelical and charismatic variety, low church Christians who believe in the Bible, um, really believe in the importance of the crucifixion of Jesus, as they should, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our justification. Right? It's incredibly important, right? And yet, one of the things we don't always connect with very deeply is how much space the New Testament authors give to the arrest, trials, execution, and burial of Jesus. We're just interested in the execution part. But there's a lot of space given in all four Gospels to the arrest and trial of Jesus. It's a big deal. And it's funny because it's like not that big a deal to us. Like, what Christians tend to do is to read that part of the Bible, if they ever do, and be like, those people were bad. They didn't listen to Jesus at all, right? And that's it. That's that's all we get out of it. And um, I want to give you a different way to look at these passages in a way that I think will really help you understand the fundamental message that the gospel writers are trying to get across. Because the gospel writers are always doing two things. They're testifying to what happened, and they're also telling us what it means doing both of those things, okay? So, um, so the question is, like, why do they spend so much time on this? And I think the, the important thing to get from it is, would be something like this. Because 
basically all human beings everywhere naturally, not necessarily in our conscious mind the way we would say it to other people, but like when you really look at how we behave, how we think in kind of deeper places we don't talk about, we generally tend to think that God ought to do what we want him to. And we, we constantly have expectations about, toward God that we think that he should live up to. And what that amounts to is trying God or putting God to a test. You might remember Jesus in Luke 4 saying, when Satan comes in and says, jump off of this building because it says in the Bible that God will protect you and won't let you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus' reply is, yes, and God also says, don't put God to a test, right? In these passages, the natural idea is to believe that Jesus is being tried, that this is the trial of Jesus, and it's not. Jesus isn't the one being tried. They are, right? And you could contemporize it like this. Jesus still isn't the one on trial. We are. Now you may think, like, well, really? Is that the way we should look at it? We should have already known that this was the case. Because in Luke chapter 2, after Jesus is born, when it's baby Jesus, he's only this big, right? Mary and Joseph are going up to the temple to do a sacrifice for their firstborn son, right? Everybody has to do this. And when they go for the sacrifice, these two really old people come up to them. Both of them apparently, like, in their 80s. That's not really old. It's the new 60, right? But they're older, right? And so— and so the man, the man, Simeon, right, Anna prophesies her a bit, and then Simeon steps up and he says, he says, listen, he says, this child, right, he's holding Jesus, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign who will be spoken against. Okay? Get it? Tried. Right? What happens at all Jesus' trials? Everybody speaks against Jesus. He will be a sign that people will speak against. And he says, there's a reason for that. And the reason is, so that—that's a purpose clause, right? So that—so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Do you see the point of the trial of Jesus? The point of the trial of Jesus is not that Jesus is being tried. The point of the trial of Jesus is, is that men and women try Jesus, and Jesus isn't the one being tried. They are. What is revealed in the trial of Jesus is not his condemnation. What is revealed in the, tri- in the trial of Jesus is what's really in the hearts of the human beings interacting with him. They are being tried, and they are failing. And you may be like, really? Okay, think about it this way. Here's the interesting irony. Jesus' real trial happens right before his human trial. Right? The word Gethsemane, right? He goes out after the Last Supper, and he goes out to the Mount of Olives, and on the Mount of Olives is this Garden of Gethsemane, which isn't a vegetable garden. It's an olive grove, okay? And the word Gethsemane means, in Aramaic, olive press. All right? So he goes to the place of the olive press, and he prays and goes back and forth to the disciples three times, right? Why three times? Do you know how many times they press olives? Three times. Okay. Now, you may know how people press wine, right? They have these little wine vats, right? And they put all the grapes in it, and then how do they crush the grapes? Old style. Old style, barefoot, right? Everybody takes their socks and shoes off, and they stomp on the, 
on the grapes, right? Because they're smushing out all the, and then the liquid runs out into this vat, and then they make wine out of it. And the reason they do it with their bare feet, and they do it personally like that, is because what you do not want to do is you don't want to crush the seeds in the grapes while you're crushing out the grapes. Because if you get the liquid that's in the seeds, it will destroy the wine. So bare feet is like just the right amount of weight. Does that make sense? Not so with olives, okay? If you put olives in a vat, and you put some people stepping on them, you're never going to get anywhere. Right? Just, I mean, just think the olives, you know, that's not going to work, right? And a lot of the olive oil is actually in the pit itself. It's not just in the olive, okay? So they wait for the first rain. At the first rain, the olives increase by about 20% in size, and then they harvest all of them, and then they put them on this roller. You see that roller thing? And they, they'll put the olives in there, and there's a piece of wood that goes through that, and then they push it around either by hand or with an, like a, a donkey or something, and it crushes and crushes and crushes and crushes with this like, like two-ton stone, right? And then when it's crushed into a complete mush— they pick it up, and they put it in these little circular bags, and they put it on the crushing, the press stone. Where's my thing? They put it on this pressing stone right here, right? And then this is attached to this big, long beam. And so then they press it down. In that first press, you get what's called the extra virgin olive oil, right? It's like all the clearest, most beautiful, and it goes down in this little vat, and then they clean it all out. And then they press it a second time. What they do is they attach these multiple-ton rocks to the beam, and then they crush with more tonnage, and they crush it, and they crush it with an incredible amount of weight. And as you get, you get dirtier and dirtier olive oil. So the first stuff is used for like cosmetics and cooking, and by the time you get to the end, they use that to light lamps, right? And they, and they press it on average three times, right? And so you see, Jesus did not get tested by human beings. He got tested by himself and by the Father. He comes out of the Last Supper. He knows he's about to be betrayed. He, he feels emotionally and personally exactly what's about to happen to him, and that is his test. He does not have to do it. He does not have to go to the cross for you, for me. He does not have to love humanity. He does not have to be ridiculed and die. He, he doesn't have to do any of it. One word he says, he's Peter, one word and ten legions of angels will save me, right? But he says, not my will, but yours be done. When Jesus is crushed in the olive press of his own trial, the only thing that flows out of him is the pure virgin olive oil of obedience, trust, and willingness. And then his trial is over. And then he's arrested and tried, and none of those are a trial of Jesus. They are all trials of us, of the men and women who thought they were trying him, and as that moves into contemporaneously with us, the fact that we are the ones being tried. Human hands, men and women, do not try God, ever. We never have, and we never will. Every time we think we try God, he's not being tried, we are. And you can see this all the way through the passage. As you work your way through the passage, you can see in every case the human being that's being tried. In every case, Jesus interacts with that person, and when he interacts with that person, something is revealed about them, not about him. And so he starts with Judas. Judas, do you portray the Son of Man with a kiss? Is this who you are? Is this what you're going to be? Does greed own you? And then what happens when you turn away? Will you give yourself to despair and suicide, or will you turn back, right? Peter, he warns him, you're going to disown me three times. And then, what, then what's going to happen, Right? And then all the disciples run. And then Caiaphas and Annas, right, they try him, and they show they are not interested in the truth. And then he, go, he goes, 
then the guards demonstrate. They're not interested in treating him justly. They're, they've given themselves to brutality. That's how they want to do their job. And then he goes to Herod, and Herod demonstrates his complete insincerity. And then the observers of all of this give themselves over to the mob, and they just join in with what's going on, and it demonstrates that they're not willing to stand up to others to do the right thing. They're going to do whatever is expedient. And you see this with the observers and the other criminals that are nailed on either side of Jesus. And then ultimately you see that with the women, devotion as close as they can get. And then ultimately Joseph of Arimathea, in honor and boldness, goes and asks for Jesus' body and buries him, which was dangerous. Right? All the way through you see people being tried by the circumstances that Jesus draws them into when they think they're trying him. Right? So, Jesus wasn't the one on trial. They were. And similarly, now, Jesus still isn't the one on trial. We are. That difference, like getting that adjusted in your heart and mind permanently, completely, believing it once for all and renewing it every morning, is the most fundamental thing to the first part of our salvation. Right? right? Like on one level, sometimes we think of Jesus working for our salvation by dying for our sins. That Jesus has come to save us from our sins. Do not confuse being saved from our sins with Jesus dying for our sins. Jesus dying for our sins, sins is only half of saving us from our sins. Jesus' death is to liberate us from the judicial penalty for our sins. That's not what it means to save us from our sins entirely. We have to be freed from their dominion over us, from our love of them, from our slavery to it. We have to, we have to repent and believe, right? But like, that's what we have to do. So wait, if we repent and believe, and then Jesus saves us because he's died for our sins on the cross, what is his other work? Well, he has to get us to repentance. How do you get sinful people that don't want to admit that God is God, that want to try God rather than realize they're being tried by God? How do you get their attention? And the answer is, He's got to crush you like olives. You have to be tried. We have to be tried. We have to get to the point where we realize there is, there is nothing good in us that's going to save us, that we're, we're not who we think we are. We have to actually get to the place where we're ready to repent and believe. Jesus has to save us from our sins. Half of that work is taking care of the penalty. Half of that work is getting us to the point of being willing to admit it. God trying us, even crushing us like olives, is part of what's necessary for us. Because until we realize that we aren't trying God, he's trying us, there is no hope for us in terms of knowing God, loving God, enjoying God, being changed by God, knowing who we are, knowing what our life is for, knowing what we were meant to be, knowing what we were meant to do, knowing how we're, what we're meant to feel, knowing what we should really think, knowing how we can really love. None of it. None of it. <laughs> so good. <laughs> All right. There's two ways that you could test this in our hearts right now. Because you say, like, okay, that's what was happening in that narrative. Like, Jesus was being tried, but he was really trying people. But what about us right now? Because Jesus isn't doing that right now. Well, there's, there's kind of two ways. Because we are interacting with Jesus through the written scriptures, through the testimonies that come to us in the Gospels. 
And so in some ways, how we read and interact with the Gospels, the testimony about Jesus, is doing the same thing in us that was happening when these things were happening. I'm going to get—there's probably like 20 examples of how that would work. I'm just going to give you two this morning. I cut out like nine so that you could go home when you want to. Okay? So let's just do two. One is, <clears throat> our hearts are tested or tried by how we respond to the inconsistencies and the testimonies about Jesus. And t- two is, our hearts are tested or tried by how we relate to the content of the accounts themselves. Okay, so let me give you an example of this. So the first one is, our hearts are kind of revealed— by how we relate to the inconsistencies in the testimony about Jesus. Okay, so anytime you have four independent testimonies about something, should you expect there to be inconsistencies if all four people were eyewitnesses? Yes, of course you will, right? If you have four independent witnesses, and they all say the exact same thing verbatim, what's happened? Collusion is the word we use for that. (laughs) Not to put too fine a point on it for this moment in time, right? Right? That means they've colluded. That means they're lying. You know that this is false, okay? If you really have four—and then that wouldn't help us, right? At best, we would have one testimony about Jesus, not four, right? And to attest to something as insane as a resurrection, you're going to want more than one testimony, right? Four is, is better than one. And so we should expect in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if they're not colluded documents, for there to be something— differences in them that we would consider inconsistencies. How can those both be true at the same time in the way the story is told, right? Question is, what, what happens in you when you find them or when you're confronted with them? How do you respond, right? So let me, let's go over one that's in this passage, okay? So in this passage about Herod, it says that when Jesus was in front of Herod, Herod put a magnificent or a, a splendid robe on Jesus, okay? In Matthew's account, it says they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. In Mark's gospel, it says they put a purple robe on him and put a crown of thorns on him. And in John's gospel, it says they put a purple robe on him and put a crown of thorns on him. Okay? So John and Mark say it was purple. Matthew says it was scarlet. And Luke just says it was luxurious. (laughs) Right? Now— That is an inconsistency. It's what we would call an apparent contradiction, right? Which is it? If you look at the rational wiki um, for what they call contradictions in the gospel narratives, the the note on this is scarlet and purple are not the same color, which is true, right? If you talk to a graphic designer, they will inform you that there's like 160 scarlets and 170 purples, and they're not the same thing, right? Okay, so there it is. So here, here's a question. Not what do you think about that? How do you feel about it? Right? Now there's, a, there's at least three ways that you can feel about it. One is, you can say, your, your, your first impulse would be, I knew it. There's nothing to this. Like, like I, I, like I knew it couldn't be right. I knew it wasn't right. Like, I, like that— yeah, of course. Like, of course it's going to unravel, right? And so that can either be a, a cynical believer, because you can be a believer and still be cynical about your belief. And many of you are, and many of us are, right? It's my temperament, personally, right? Some of us can actually—and so, and so your natural feeling is going to be pride. I knew this. Yeah, of course it's like that, right? The other side, you can be kind of like an insecure believer, and your response could be fear. Like, oh my gosh, is this right? I don't know. This is my whole life. I mean— I, I mean, you could really—I mean, you can really feel—some people, some people, like, feel pits in their stomach. They'll feel physically, like, upset. 
right? And then a third response is maybe what you might call the response of piety, that like a humble faith is, is that would be curiosity. would be like, well, yeah, I mean, that needs to be looked into, right? I mean, if, if you were an investigator and you had four stories and there were some inconsistencies in those stories, what do you do? Like, what is a police officer supposed to do when he separates the witnesses and he interviews four different people and they all tell him slightly different things? What's his job? What's his job, right? Does he just go, I'm just going to pick who to believe, right? Or does he just go, I'm not going to believe any of them. They're all liars, right? No, what, what do you do if you're an investigator? Right, what would you do? You keep them separate and you, you press on the inconsistencies. Now you said this, but another guy said this. Are you lying to me? Like, what's going on with this and what's that? How, well, what time did that happen? What, and you try to get them upset, too, so that they can't lie very well. And you're like, you tell them they're liars. Or you're going to arrest them even if you're not planning to. Just to see what you can, if you could rattle them, right? And you just, you press on the inconsistencies. And when you do that, sometimes they work out. And you realize that what were inconsistencies were just different ways of explaining something. And sometimes you find out they get wider. And then you, like, unravel the whole thing. And you find out they're a bunch of liars, right? But if you really want to know the truth, you've got to press on the inconsistencies. That's what you would do if you wanted to know the truth. But of course, I'm a pastor, and I've worked with people who are stuck in the legal system, and I've had, I've had people tell me horror stories about police officers just decided they were going to believe what they want to believe and just went in that direction. Other people just, they believed people and just didn't do anything. Right? How you respond to things, especially things in the gospel narratives, actually doesn't tell you that much about the gospel narratives. It actually tells you a lot about yourself. Right? There's this old preacher story about room six in the Louvre, um, which is the room that has the Mona Lisa in it. There's like 52 paintings in there. And um, there's this guy, and he, go, he goes in, and he's never seen the Mona Lisa before, and he kind of stands in front of it like this. He kind of like cocks his head like this, and he walks around, and he like looks at it at different angles. And finally, after he's looked at it for a while, he goes, he goes, hmm, it's not that good. I don't like it. Right? Now, if, if our story was in Britain, the guard standing next to the painting probably would just keep his mouth shut. But it's in France, Right? And so you can imagine, like, the guard saying something like, Monsieur, you are American, no? You know. And then he said something like this. Sir, the paintings in this room are no longer being judged. The people who view them are. Right? There are some texts, there are some things, there are some things that we interact with, and God is one of those things. They aren't being judged. The people viewing them are, right? And whether or not you believe this, like I realize that, like, I can't prove this right now. We, we have a limited amount of time. The Gospels are actually like that, too. Like, they've been subjected to withering criticism by all of Europe for 300 years, okay? Like, like it's run its course. They're no longer being judged. We are, right? Let me give an example for this, okay? So— um, there's a couple ways to interact with, with the, the, the inconsistencies in the discussion. Do I need to give you a minute? Okay. So, <clears throat> it's true that scarlet and purple are different colors. That's true. They're also exactly neighbors on the color wheel. Do you remember this from like sixth grade? You've got blue over here and red over here. And then up here is... Yellow is the other primary color. 
right? And then between blue and red, you've got purple. And a little closer to red, you've got scarlet. And a little closer to blue, you've got really purple blue, right? <laughs> and like I was 24 years old before, like honestly, God, when I was 24 years old, 24 years old, I was wearing like a red shirt and I think blue pants. And this woman came up to me and said, you can't wear that red with blue jeans. And I was like, what do you mean that red? And she was like, it's a yellow red. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, I had no idea that like in the fabric, they like would put yellow thread to make it look like a little bit of a yellow red. And then they put blue thread in and make it a little like a bluish red. And like that's supposed to match up with your other stuff. And like, I don't care. Right? And, and <clears throat> so there's a couple points we can take from this. One is you could imagine a color between red and scarlet that could be reasonably described either way. Like that dress. And remember, the Gospels were written by non-artists and men. <laughs> like, I mean, can you imagine sitting down with Matthew and Mark and be like, well, which is it? Was it scarlet or purple? And they'd be like, is that a real question? You know, right? Okay, so, and then secondly, because they're very close on the color wheel, they go together in outfits. Like, they, they go together. Also, in the ancient world, red was the second most expensive color, like a reddish scarlet, and purple's the most expensive, okay? Because if you, like, if you were poor and you wanted to get, like, your little girl at something pretty, you would get her, like, a yellow or a green, like, additional thing to put on her brown wool outfit. Because yellow and green were things that you could get that you weren't supposed to eat. Like they were, they were dyes that you could get and they were relatively inexpensive. Most of the reds were done with pomegranate juice. And so you were actually using food that was extremely healthy and not particularly easy to come by if you were poor to make clothing, right? And do you know how they did purple? Do you know why purple was like so much different? Purple was like, purple wasn't like a little bit more expensive than red. It's like yellow, green, red— Purple. And my purple was like the, by far the most expensive because they got the dye from these little shellfish. It took thousands of them. It was animal cruelty. It was terrible. So bad. It's little mollusks. They just, it was very painful. So they, they literally would go in the Mediterranean and they would have to like, they would, they would have to pick all these, all these shelled mollusks and then they had to crush them up and they had to, to create a little bit of this dye so that they could make a purple dye to do purple cloth. And so purple cloth is extremely expensive. Okay, now Luke tells us that the robe is magnificent or splendid, and he tells us where it gets put on him. It gets put on him in the household of Herod. Okay, now you may not know anything about Herod Antipas. Okay, but this guy was like a drag queen prima donna. Okay, there was, there was no, like, so Herod, so you know later in Acts, Herod Antipas dies, he gets eaten by worms. You remember that passage? Okay, so like Josephus actually has an account of that day, okay? It was a big party at this hippodrome. They were doing like horse races. And at Caesarea Maritima, like right on the Mediterranean with a freshwater pool cut into the rock and everything, okay? It was a little opulent. And so Herod Antipas comes out with his new like Victoria's Secret runway model outfit, which had wings. It was all silver. 
and it was silver scales made to look and etched to look like bird feathers. So he came as a shining silver bird to these horse races, okay? And this was the event, actually, where people were like, this is the voice of a god, not a man. And because he didn't honor God, like, he got his bowels got eaten out by worms. It was apparently a very horrible death, right? But, like, that was the outfit he wore. Like, people couldn't look at him because he was so shiny, because he had a silver, bird-feathered, constructed outfit for this event, okay? This is the guy we're talking about. And they pulled out one of his robes to throw on Jesus, okay? Now, in addition to that, how do rich people show their rich with their outfits? That you can afford not one color, but two. The two most expensive colors, scarlet and purple. In fact, most robes had multiple colors, especially wealthy ones. One of the ways rich people showed that they were rich is that they had more than one color in their robe. Especially insane drag queen, queen prima donnas like Herod Antipas, okay? So the idea that Jesus probably had on a robe from Herod Antipas's clothes that was extremely expensive, that was both colors and more, and that could easily be described as scarlet or purple, like, there's no issue with that, right? In addition, of course, the gospel writers have a reason why they describe things in certain ways, right? Purple is the color of royalty, and so the ones who describe it as purple are, are accenting the irony of Jesus being dressed up as a king and being a king, yet not recognized as one, and so on, okay? So there's, there's that kind of stuff built in, too. Now, but that's not the point. The point is not how you answer it. The point is how you feel about the problem and how you feel about the answer, Right? <clears throat> like, if you were like, oh, Nick's going to say something about how it really goes together, and it's not a problem, and it's going to be stupid, and it's going to be motivated thinking. Okay, that just—listen, that may tell you something about me. It almost definitely tells you something about you, right? That you're, you're naturally cynical about this, and that, that's how you feel, and that's, that's what you expect to happen, right? And if you think—if you're ready to believe anything I told you, you were like, oh no, it's a contradiction. Surely Nick is going to solve this for us or he wouldn't put it up there. And you're like ready to believe. I would just be like, ah, purple and scarlet are basically the same. And you would be like, I know! Right? That tells you something about you. It tells you something about you. About how insecure you feel about your faith and how, how uncurious you are, how, how afraid you are that if you really— if you test God in a good way, if you like taste and see, if you investigate, if you have a deep curiosity about him, if you find out too much, you're afraid you're actually going to find skeletons in his closet or that he's not really there or something. Right? Is, is that you? Because it's best to be honest. Or maybe you were really curious and you were like, okay, well, let's hear it, man. Because I want to know. I'm interested. And we'll, let's see what happens. And I mean, I'll go check on some of this stuff later or something. Because I think that's what piety would be. Piety would be like, let's press on them. Because I, w- I bet I know what's going to happen. I bet God's going to teach us something. I bet, I bet he's actually going to build our confidence in the end. But it might be difficult. Maybe we won't find an answer. I don't really know. So there's ways in which the inconsistencies and the testimonies themselves actually tell us stuff about us. Okay, but probably more central to what's going on is that our hearts are revealed by how we relate to the content of the accounts themselves, the characters, and what happens, and how we think and feel about the things that are actually happening, right? 
So I'm just going to talk about Herod. Five things related to Herod. Because remember, in the Gospels, the Gospel writers are not just focused on telling us literally just exactly what happened. They're also interested in telling us more than that. What the events mean, and they're trying to show us what those events should mean to us. Because remember, their goal is our faith. They're telling us something they believe is true, truthfully, in a way that we could then believe it was true. Right? That's exactly what Luke says. I've investigated everything so you'd be certain about what you have been taught. What John says is, I've written these things so that you would believe in the Son of God and through him have life. Right? So <clears throat> in this section about Herod, Herod actually, or what Luke is doing, is he's telling us what happened with Herod. But the reason, he, but the, so the question is, why does he tell us this story and why do the other gospel writers not tell us this story? Like, why does Luke include it? The other gospel writers didn't include it. They thought it would be better to just have a simpler description of the trial of Jesus. Just Pilate, like Caiaphas, Pilate, crucifixion. That Herod Antipas stuff is just a sideways energy, right? It's just, let's go right through. Why include Herod Antipas, right? <clears throat> well, Luke is writing to Gentiles. But in this story about Herod Antipas is also the dynamic of how people come to hate God and choose wickedness. In this story, if you allow the story to try you, if instead of seeing Herod Antipas as the evil person you're not like, but instead you see Herod Antipas as an evil person you are like, it'll change you, it'll help you, it'll teach you, or you can use it just to self-assure yourself. Like, I mean, think about this. Like, when you read the Bible and you read about the Pharisees, what do you think? Do you say, oh, those Pharisees, they're just, they're just like Republicans, right? Or Democrats, or accountants, you know, like, I mean, is, is that how you feel? Do you like, do you not identify with them? You're like, oh, those are those bad people, and I wouldn't be like them. And you're like, you see Jesus, like, treating some people, somebody who's like on the outskirts of society, really loving you, and you're like, Jesus is so fantastic. He's a lot like me. He's just a really, just a really deep, good person. Like, and all the good people are like you, and all the bad people are like those other people you don't like, Right? You are a Pharisee if you think that way. Like, you're literally a Pharisee. Like, the, the, every character, every character that Jesus interacts with is a explanation and a display of true humanity. It's a display of what people are like. You're a people, okay? The person you are least like in the Gospels is Jesus, Okay? Like, if you find yourself identifying with the good guys, like, it's, like, in the Gospels, you're Jesus. In the Epistles, in Acts, you're Paul and Peter. You're crazy! Right? It's like reading the story of David and Goliath and being like, I'm David in that story. No, you're not! No, you're the Israelite pooping your pants up on the hill while David goes and wins the victory for you in Christ. Jesus is David. You are the terrified Israelites. You are not the only way you'll ever be a David is if you don't think you're David in that story. The only way you'll be like Moses is if you don't think you're Moses in that story. The only way you'll be like Jesus is if you don't think you're Jesus in that story. Not seeing yourself as the, he as the hero is the only way Jesus can make a hero out of you. It is the prerequisite. You must be tried. Right? The filthy second and third pressings of the contaminated oil has to be crushed out of you before you can be filled with the new wine of the cross. 
So here are the five things. Ready? The first is, we really believe that God should do for us what we want and that he should prove himself to us. Right? It says that Herod had heard about Jesus and he had wanted to see Jesus because he wanted to see Jesus do some kind of miracle. Right? See the problem with that? That's not what miracles are for. Jesus is not a kid's show musician. Right? He's not like, oh, let me do a little miraculous balloon at him for you. You like that, Herod? That's great. You know, like, Herod wanted to see a miracle. He didn't want to grapple with what the miracle meant. Every miracle Jesus does, he does because it means something. It is meant to display that he is the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed one. That he's bringing a new kingdom into the world that we must enter only by repentance and belief. That in him we can have an easy yoke rather than the one that's crushing us. That in him we can seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And everything else will be added to us. That in him we can put on the new man or woman created in God to be made in true righteousness and holiness. Every miracle points to that. They're not for you. Not in that sense. Miracles are like when you get better from when you're sick, if you're not a particularly sickly person. I mean, I, every time I get like the flu or like a really bad sinus infection, I feel just awful. Like everything is so hard to do, right? Until the minute I get better. And then the minute I get, I'm like, I, don't, I just can't be sick like this. And then I get better. I wake up and I feel better. And then I just, I forget everything. Like, I, like this last week, I was feeling really sick. And I was like, you know what? I need a journal while I'm sick because— I need to remember what this feels like because so many people in my congregation feel this way all the time. And the minute I get better, I'm going to forget this and I'm going to feel better, right? Do you think I journaled? No. No, I didn't because I felt really sick. <laughs> and now I feel better. And listen, I have seen, I have seen in my lifetime, my ministry, numerous miracles in people's lives. And maybe half of those people serve Jesus today. It does not seal the deal. It does nothing. Unless you grapple with what it means. How many Christians spend their prayer life and they spend their time asking God to do things for them? To take away something bad, to bring about something good, to do something that they want. God, please do this thing that I want. Please do this thing that I want. How did Jesus respond to Herod asking for these things, asking him to prove himself, asking him to do the thing that he wanted. Right? Silence. Nothing. Okay, listen. The biggest existential, the biggest heart problem that we tend to have as people is the hiddenness of God. That's not our biggest problem, but because we are so self-centered, we think it's our biggest problem. Why isn't God here? Why doesn't God show himself? Why doesn't God do more? Why doesn't God show me that he's there? Why does it, why does it, why does it, why? Listen, if you really want to answer that question, Honestly, read through the Bible and pay special attention to every place where God is silent. Where somebody tries to interact with God and God says nothing or does nothing. There's two of them in this passage. Do the thing I want you to do and prove yourself to me. And what does Jesus do? Nothing. Why? Because that is the loving thing to do in that situation. That's why. And so Herod is put off by that. And so he moves to the next predictable step down the road to learning to hate God. Because they think, you think that you're trying God rather than he's trying you. 
The, step, the second step is saying, okay, you won't do the thing I want you to do. At least answer my questions. Right? That's actually the central struggle in Job, too. Job loses everything. It's clear that God isn't going to change his circumstances. And so he reverts to saying what? I want God to explain this to me. I want an audience with God. I want to tell God how I feel. I want to find out why he's doing this, right? And so it says that Herod plied Jesus with many questions. It says, it says literally in the Greek, interrogated him with many words. And then the response is, and Jesus said, nothing. Right? Now think about this for a second. <clears throat> what would you do if, like, if you got to sit down with Jesus? Like, how would you use your time? If you came in for an hour appointment with me, and you got there, and I was like, look, I, I want to meet with you. I like talking with you, but like, Jesus is actually hanging out in the office today. He's in the next office. Why don't we just go, and you can talk with him, right? And you didn't—you weren't prepared for it. You just walk in, there's Jesus. You sit down, you got 45 minutes. Like, what would happen? Right? You'd probably prattle on for like 35 minutes, right? Or like, what if you just—what if you had 15 minutes with Jesus? Okay, that's it. You got to premeditate it. You got 15 minutes. How are you going to spend your time? All answers are not equally true or correct to this question. How would you use your time? Okay, I'll tell you the right answer. You want to know the right answer? This is what you do. You shut up. Or to put it in more biblical terms, in 1 Samuel, you say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. You see, when somebody is asking all the wrong questions— Sometimes silence is the right response. When I was in my 20s and I was at university, I studied a lot of apologetics and like reasons for why to believe the gospel is right. And I had tons of philosophical reasons and arguments and so on. And, and it was important in those days. But whenever anybody would ask me questions about like why I believed what I believed, I didn't stop. I didn't start with, should I answer this question? I just tried to answer it. I was just like, I got an answer for that. And I usually did have an answer for that. The problem was— <clears throat> That often was not the right thing to do. Often the right thing to do was to say, why do you ask that question? What do you think? If there was an answer to that question, what do you think the answer would be? Is there any answer that I could give you that you would like? Or nothing. Or to say, why do you think I have to defend Almighty God? Like, what gives you that, that idea? Or, I'm not going to steal your destiny by giving you answers you're meant to seek. Because I'll give you an answer and just make you lazier. And you'll never find the truth. Because the truth isn't going to come to you. It's something that God—it says in the Bible, God rewards those who seek him. Right? And so, so Herod asks all these questions of Jesus. He's got a few minutes of Jesus. He asks him all these questions, and Jesus says nothing. Right? Again, take note if you're— Struggling through the hiddenness of God. Take note of the situations in which God says nothing. You might be like, Nick, I've asked for a miracle. I've asked for God's help. I've asked God to change this thing. And then I asked him why this is happening. And I've asked him these questions. And I just, I get nothing. He does nothing. He says nothing. Uh, yeah! Read the Bible. That's how he responds to that attitude. When you think you are putting him on trial, when you think he should do the stuff you want, when you think he should answer your questions, when you think he should do the stuff you need, you want, you think, you— you think you have God on trial. And this is how Jesus responds to that. Doesn't do a thing. Doesn't say a thing. And that is love. Because we must be tried. 
and squished and even broken until we get to the place where we can have the capacity for repentance. Because that's the only thing that redeems. And it's the only thing that will actually produce in us piety. And in relationship to God, at least, piety is the only thing that can really produce creativity and curiosity rather than cynicism. Right? So then that leads to the third thing, which is God isn't giving him what he needs, so he starts to listen to God's detractors. Right? Because he won't do a miracle, and because he won't answer his questions, now his accusers are standing right there. All the people who want to slander Jesus. And so Herod turns his attention from Jesus, because Jesus won't give him what he wants, and he turns to the people who slander Jesus, and he starts to listen to them. Yeah, that's—you know, he didn't do what I wanted. What you're saying, all these negative things you're saying about them, they're probably all true. Right? And that's what's happening to some of you, and it's happened to some of the people you've seen walk away from the faith. They came to Jesus like they could put him on trial. They didn't get what they wanted. God seemed to be silent. And what emotion did that create? Let's not lie to ourselves. What emotion does that create? When you pray for stuff that you think is reasonable, that God would give you if he loved you because he's your loving Heavenly Father, and nothing happens, and then you pray about it, you ask him questions, and you just want an answer, and that's all you want. And you're asking with complete honesty because you're an honest person, and you get no answers. What's the feeling? Let's say it together. Anger! So angry! Right? And so what do you do in that anger? Because everything feels so clear when you're angry. Right? Everything's so clear. You're going to tell that person off. You're going to pull over in that parking lot, that person who cut you off. And you're going to—like, you're so right. Like, your argument, like, the way you see this is the only way a reasonable person could see it. You're so right. Right? And now you're looking. You're looking for a reason to accuse him now. And there's, there's all kinds of people who will help you with that. There are all kinds of slanderers, mockers, right? In this case, the high priests, right? And they're like, Jesus is terrible. He did all these things. He said all this stuff. He's awful. And Herod's like, I believe that. He's that kind of person. You know, I asked, just asked him a few simple questions. He wouldn't even answer me. He's terrible. And they're like, I know, right? And so you turn to the detractors, and it it continues to tear your faith down. And in your anger, you listen to all the poison. Because you have the right to try God. You have the right to get what you want. You have the right to an answer. It's just decency on his part. And he won't do it. Surely all these things said about him negatively are true. You were brainwashed all along. You need to get free of this religion stuff. I know all kinds of people who talk that way. And then, can you move to the next one up there again? So the next one is that he actually starts abusing Jesus with everybody else. He has his soldiers, and he himself engages in abuse. Because once you listen to statements that he's inhuman, once you listen to statements that he's wrong, that he's evil, that he's bad, and you buy into that, it just feels like justice to abuse God. And it just feels like wisdom to mock him. You feel like you're doing the world a favor by destroying their quaint religious beliefs as best as you can and just adding yourself to the chorus of people who heap abuse and scorn on him. And then you count those mockers your friends. And you seal in bonding in your wickedness what you speak against them and how you hate them, and then you call it friendship, right? At the end it says that that day, it was that day that Herod and Pilate became friends. 
Because before that, they hated each other. But oh, what sweet bonding it is to murder an innocent man because he didn't bow to you. He didn't do what you wanted him to because he, he acted like when you were trying him that he was trying you. Right? All that's literally historically true. That's what happened when Jesus was in front of Herod. But the question is, how do you read it? Who do you think you are in that story? How does it affect you? How do you feel like you're a part of it? Do you feel like, do you feel like you're like Herod and that you're being tried and that you are just like him? And that you, all these, all these characteristics you see in Herod, you can see in yourself. And that you want to turn to Jesus and say, Lord, save me from the wretched man or woman that I am. Show me what the truth is. Teach me how to be like you. Help me to know how to repent of this. Show me the idols that I worship, the, the mammon, the, the licking of the earth that I do because of the stuff I just want that would make, my, make me a betrayer, would make me a hater, would make me a mocker, would make me think that I can try you when what I need is for you to try me. Right? I'm just going to read a couple applications for you. If I can make this thing work. I can't make this thing work. So, because people are like, Nick, how is this practical for me? Like, I, I need some pointers, some spiritual pointers. Okay, the Bible is not mainly focused on spiritual pointers. It's focused on a horrifically degraded sinful hearts and freeing us from the bondage and slavery of that so that we can turn wholeheartedly to Jesus in faith. Because once that happens, most of the rest of the stuff takes care of itself. You find pointers everywhere, right? So like, the person still seeking to try and test Jesus gets and learns nothing from him. What most of us do when we try to test Jesus is when he doesn't give us what we want, we push the test harder. We're stubborn. And what this passage tells us, as well as many other passages, is that as long as you stay in the posture of testing Jesus, rather than being tested by him, you will get nothing from him. You won't get miracles. You won't get answers. You get nothing. And because that's the most loving thing for him to do for you. Right? Second thing is, is there's where there's no humility, there's no piety. And where there's no piety, there's no real curiosity. You cannot learn from God. The God that really exists teaches and trains us in the context of real humble faith or piety. You can't get there without piety. Piety precedes learning from God. And so that requires releasing your felt right to try him and to realize that these texts and the work of Jesus exists to try and help you, right? And then third is we can't really become Jesus' disciple until Jesus really becomes the teacher. And he's not really the teacher until you quit trying him and you start listening to him. Can you go to the next one? That change is the thing that allows God to speak and show himself. If you realize God is trying you, and your heart gets into the position of piety through repentance and faith, you actually will find God acting in your behalf and speaking to you in ways that you can perceive now because you have ears to hear it. So he'll do things he couldn't have done for you otherwise or it would have hurt you, and you'll be able to hear things that you would have just refused before. Most of the advice that you need, the real help, the real teaching Jesus wants to give you, until your heart is such that you are being tried by him, you're just going to refuse whatever he tells you. 
And he just, he doesn't waste his words that way. Go to the next one, would you? And then once that happens, a lot of the things that you thought were irrelevant, you'll find infinitely relevant. Like I was just talking to a, a woman after this last service, and she said it was funny. She said for years I would, I would read stuff in the Bible here and there whenever I'd feel like reading it, and I felt like this is so irrelevant. It's not really helpful. It's like it happened 2,000 years ago. Like it's just not helping me. Like God's really just not meeting me. And then she came to something that we did at this church, and she like got reignited with God. And she was like, oh my gosh, I really need God. Right? And I was like, okay, great. Now read the Bible again. And she's like, she's been reading it now for like four— Four to eight weeks. I can't remember how many weeks now. And she was like, Nick, everything in that book speaks to me. It's unbelievable. I was like, yeah. Because when you got a new heart, you got a new attitude. When you got a new attitude, you became teachable. When you became teachable, you realized everything in the world is relevant. The reason you don't find things relevant is because you're pissy. That's why. You don't need a better preacher. You need a different heart. Right? Like, I know there's people at this church where you left other churches because you like, oh, like, you know, Nick yells at least or something. Maybe, maybe he'll be funny. We'll, we'll look for, like, a funny preacher. Like, I'm no better than most of the pastors in, in this city. Like, I, like, dress it up and I can do a little dance or something sometimes. But, like, all these, like, boring dudes preaching throughout the city who are preaching the scriptures, it's incredibly relevant. We are just such a pissy people. And we think we get to, like— Pick through stuff. Like, I don't like my pasta made that way. I like the Parmesan that's grated. You know, like, it's unbelievable what we're like. The early churches didn't even have pastors. They, like, just held each other accountable. We're like, well, you doing what Jesus said? They didn't need, like, people who could parse Greek and stuff. They just needed people who would, like, get in their face and be like, Did you, have you stopped stealing? Because you belong to Jesus now. You need to quit stealing. And they're like, yeah, I guess I should. Like, that's what, that was what church was. They'd sing a song, and then they'd basically hold each other accountable. It's like what it says in the ancient documents. Instead, we, like, sing, and, like, you can keep stealing. You know, like, that's—right? So, here's the question. What are you going to do with the fact that you are not trying God? He's trying you. We can do that. Because you can be like Judas. You can— when you finally realize it's true, you can just fall into despair and suicide and believe that there's no redemption for you. You can be like Caiaphas and say, think you're a good religious person and even God shouldn't tell you you're not and just stick to your guns because it'll be fine as long as you're stubborn enough. Or you can be like Herod and Pilate and you can just be like too worldly to care. You can just be like, look, I'm, I'm about the real world. I'm about real life. I'm going to do what works. I'm going to blah, 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 blah. And I can't be— I can't be called in all this, like, pious mumbo-jumbo. Right? Or you can be like Peter, who failed, and when he knew he failed, and when he saw Jesus look him in the face, it affected him the way it should. He ran out of the garden, and he wept like a little baby for the shame and humiliation of the man he really was. The violent coward who had no business being the rock upon which Jesus said he'd built his church. And that's repentance. And the man who dove out of the boat when he saw Jesus on the beach and ran up to him, hoping, hoping that Jesus would have something restoring to say to him. That's faith. Because if we will realize we're not the heroes, Jesus can make us the heroes of our own lives. That was his intention all along. You guys— in a guarded way, 
I tell you again, we have no idea what we're capable of. We are far too easily pleased with just the absence of pain. You were created to bear the divine image as as something that the world would think was God's if it didn't know that God was God. You are made to have the capacity to love, to be martyrs, to speak the truth, to desire justice in every situation, to be willing to risk yourself and your well-being for what's right, to discern the truth and lead things in good directions, to build things unconceived of. Like, you were created to be an unbelievable creature. And you can be that creature. And you can bear that image in righteousness and true holiness. And you can, you can have strengths that you never believed were possible. Strengths that you wouldn't trust anybody had can be true of you. But it starts with accepting you will never try Jesus. He was tried, and he was found perfect. And that every day, every day, God will try you. And every day, he will crush out the last of the spoiled oil left in you. So that you are empty enough for him to pour the new wine of the Holy Spirit and the new wine of the gospel purchased on the cross for you. So that when he makes you like himself, you will be more yourself than you ever dreamed you could be. But it must start with who tries who. Jesus was never on trial. We are. Let's pray together. Jesus, will you please help us to once and for all repent and believe and daily renew what we must know about who tries who? Will you give us the kind of piety, the faithful humility that has the curiosity who lets you be our teacher so you can tell us who we really are, show us who we are. Show us why we're this way, and lead us to our change. Lead us to how you would change us, how you would lead us. Lead us to finding our joy in what you've done, and what you've called us to be. God, we pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you'd awaken in us a desire to love sacrificially, to have the mind of Christ, to grow in a kind of powerful, brave virtue, and to keep in step with the Spirit every day of our lives. And we pray that in that posture of being your disciple, your learner, God, we call upon you to teach us. We are ready to shut up. We are ready to listen and let you speak. And God, we pray that you'd help us to do that. And we pray that you would teach us great and amazing things we have never dreamed of in these days.